You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. Welcome to Season 3 of the Arise Bible Academy. In our first lesson, The Complete Picture, Philip Edwards will explain how traditions have been neglected and received over the years, opening with the contemplative tradition. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching, and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can keep up to date with the latest modules throughout the year, the ministries we have to offer, including prayer and guest preaching, and also how you can donate securely online to the ministry. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Good evening and welcome to our third Uh, season of teaching at Arise Academy. Uh, Today is the day that uh, our dear Queen, our Sovereign, was laid to rest and uh, some of the students are not with us this evening. I think they must be exhausted at looking at so much television or something like that. I mean, uh, but it was a a wonderful experience, I think, watching that and uh, you couldn't help being impressed at the organisation and everything else. And uh, as a Christian, all the wonderful things that were said uh, about the Lord Jesus, about God, uh, all the scriptures that were read, it was just refreshing as a Christian to sit and listen to that. So I just pray, and I'm sure you agree with me, that God can speak into the hearts of people because, you know, they're emotional, uh, they're sensitive, and um, yeah, some wonderful things were said and uh, I'm, I'm sure people recognize uh, she was faithful and loyal and a wonderful person and that God was in that somehow. That was said again and again and again. So that's good. Let's uh, look now to this year to consider what we're going to do this year. Um, as I said, this is the third uh, season or year that we're teaching at Arise. Uh, the previous two have uh, been a lot of foundational teaching, and of course each year we want to build on what we've established in the previous years. Uh, this year we will study a couple of books. We did one last year, you remember, we studied uh, an exposition of the book of Daniel. This year I want to do a New Testament and an Old Testament. I want to get into Jonah. That's a very interesting story. Um, Usually we have a children's uh, impression of the story of Jonah. Well, I'll smash that completely to bits and I'll destroy all the little dreams you have in your heart about uh, the story of Jonah. And we'll look at some of those facts, which uh, it's an interesting book though, great book. And in the New Testament, we want to look at John's first epistle, that great uh, apostle of love and to see what he has to say. We have a couple of practical uh, subjects this term as or this year as we normally do we want to look at the triumphs of faith this is a study of some of those people in Hebrews chapter 11 great men and women of faith and each picture is a different aspect of faith and how it can teach us very practical and we also want to look at being financially free just to see a little bit about what the money uh, what the Bible says about money it actually says quite a lot Uh, but um, that's going to be an interesting one and it might bring freedom to people. Uh, It doesn't mean it'll make you rich, uh, but uh, to be free 
is different from being rich. You can be free and poor or free and rich, or you can be bound and poor and bound and rich. So um, we're going to be talking about the, the freedom that the, the gospel brings to us. Our first module is going to be on the traditions of the Christian faith. I want to, in this, broaden out, as it were, your understanding of Christianity. We've come uh, and uh, into the Christian faith, usually in a denomination or a particular church, and we've uh, been handed down the traditions, often, of just that church. And so what we're going to do is broaden that out and see, actually, the the church is a lot broader than what perhaps I've been taught or the tradition that has been handed down to me. That's why I call it the traditions, because traditions are handed down. It is teaching that's been handed, but I've called it traditions. The big change that's going to happen this year is our students are going to become part of the teaching faculty. Um, I hope that doesn't frighten off a number of students. We don't, don't know if it will. I hope it will attract others. Uh, what we want to do is give opportunity to those who are gifted with the ability to teach and want to have an opportunity to develop that gift and to be confident. We had a, a module last year where we looked at preaching and those students that came forward and, and did it, it was just a 10-minute message. They did such an excellent job, I thought. I felt God speak to me and say, well, we need to broaden this out. It was always the aim of this Bible school to, to raise up teachers. Uh, so many ministers die without leaving a legacy of gifted men and women after them, or they don't have that in their mind. But I hope that we will, through this Bible school, develop a whole... Uh, a large group of Bible teachers over the years. The traditions then of the Christian faith. Let's get started on that one now. Our salvation is a direct work of the Holy Spirit. It's true in every born-again believer's life. It doesn't matter what church you're in or what setting you're in, wherever you are in the world, salvation is a work of the Spirit. We might be sitting in a very formal church or a very free church, but God comes by his spirit and reveals the reality and truth of Jesus Christ to us. He reveals that we are sinners. And he, at the same time he shows us we're sinners, he shows us we have a saviour. And so by putting our faith and trust in what Christ has done for us, we are born again of the spirit. That is totally a work of the spirit but what we believe about this Christian life, what follows after that uh, initial uh, meeting with God, it's been handed down to us by the particular tradition or the church or the denomination we find ourselves in. And I want to uh, examine that tonight and to uh, suggest to you over the next coming weeks, uh, looking at different traditions and how that might be something that we appreciate or we've never even thought of. Maybe we've looked at a group of Christians and thinking they do some really strange things. I don't do that and somehow they're wrong. But we've been robbed, you see, of what they've understood and what they've seen and the traditions that they have received. So that's what it is. I'm hoping it'll broaden out uh, your whole understanding of things. 
What has determined what you believe then? What has determined the traditions that you follow? I'm sure for most of us, it's the ministers that we've sat under. They're the, the principal ones that teach us. So really, whatever they believe is what you get. They can't teach you what they don't believe or what they don't know. So if, if the minister that you've been sitting under for years is narrow in his understanding, the tradition that has been passed down to him, whatever group he's in, that's all you're going to get. That could be in an Anglican tradition, it could be in a Baptist tradition or a Catholic tradition. That's what you get. He's not cheating you, he's doing the best of what he knows. So often the denomination we find ourselves in is a thing that has determined what it is we believe. Some traditions uh, within certain denominations say, don't go there, that's not right, you shouldn't do that, or we don't do this, or we've moved on, that was something of the past, really robbing us of some of the truth that is there that we should be able to embrace. The other thing that teaches you, or the tradition that you have uh, received, are the books that you've read. See, this is where we can break away from those that minister to us or the denomination we find ourselves in. We go, hmm, I wonder what this person says about this or this person. So in the end, if you read, uh, it's a great blessing. If you don't, well, it doesn't matter too much, but it's good if you can read Christian books. You can read a much broader uh, understanding of the church. And uh, usually I found in certain denominations, the denominations push the books of authors of that denomination so they don't go too, too broad and too far. So sometimes it's good to dip into something over there or something over here and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you how broad the church can be. Like I said, the Pentecost tradition that was handed down to them was nothing like the Anglican tradition that was handed down to them. It almost seems chalk and cheese, miles apart. Uh, it was interesting watching the ceremony today, how it's, it's formal and it's Anglican, uh, but everything in it is, is wonderful, everything that's said, if they're, they're talking from the scriptures, but it's, it seems far removed from if you were brought up in a Pentecostal church where ideas and thoughts are different. As I said, the, the Baptist tradition is, is a long way from the Catholic tradition. And sometimes in history, they've been really opposed, maybe each calling each other not really a Christian, that they're the true Christians, and because that's, that's a shame, really. The truth is then, we've only ever, all of us, received part of the picture, the true picture about Christ. And that's no one's fault. That's just the way the church has evolved. And probably within the first century, it was evolving like that. Maybe within the first 10 or 20 years, things were starting to happen. Because we know within the Jewish religion, there were many sects and many arguments about what this rabbi taught and that rabbi taught, and these were wrong and these were right, whether it be Sad Sadducees or Pharisees and all the other particular groups that were there. In this module, then, we will consider the principal traditions that have been handed down, those aspects of Christ's life that people saw something very special in it and the Holy Spirit revealed something to them and it became part of their life. 
demonstrated then, these traditions have been demonstrated to us through the life of Christ. So we will examine his life. Week by week, we will look at the life of Christ uh, as it pertains to this particular tradition that we are looking at. And we see that through the 200 years of church history, what the Holy Spirit has sought to do is to revise or to remind us about certain traditions that were lost or things that we were ignorant about. We're to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And I've seen in my life uh, over the past 60 years or so different things that were sort of lost to the church and then the Holy Spirit has revived them the way that we worship the whole thing of healing and deliverance, the charismatic movement, all of these things, they were always there, but somehow they were neglected, got lost somewhere, and so the Holy Spirit had to come and revive them and bring them back to us. Jesus gives us, we're told, a complete picture of God. If we see Jesus, we see God. He demonstrates for us in his life and his experiences what God is really like. God in his fullness. Jesus said, I have come to give you life in its fullness. This is what we're going to be considering and looking at this evening. There's a lovely verse in Colossians 2 and 9. It says this, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Just meditate on that. Within Christ, all of God was. And it was manifested through his life. Remember, poor old Philip, he's discouraged uh, at the Last Supper. And the next day, Christ is going to go to the cross. He doesn't realise that, but Christ spends the whole evening with them. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he says, you know, where are you going and all that. He, and that, through this dialogue, he turns to Philip and he says, if, if you saw me, you saw the Father, because the Father manifested himself through my life. When he says, show us the Father. But the verse doesn't stop there in only saying that, that, that God was manifested in bodily form in Christ. But, he says, and you have been given fullness in Christ. <laughs> that freaks you out, doesn't it? That's a bit scary. It's as though God was manifested in Jesus Christ in his fullness. And now, because the Holy Spirit comes to bring Christ to us, we have Christ in his fullness, therefore we have God in his fullness with the potential of manifesting the life of God from our lives. You go, oh, I have to think about that one a little bit. It's just a bit too much. I'm not saying you're deity. I'm not saying you're God. But what I'm saying is the fullness of God has entered into you so you can live in that fullness. That famous verse, John 10.10, 10, remember, when he says, I have come that you might have life 
and have it in the full, that you might have the fullness of life, not some narrow idea of Christianity that's been traditionally handed down to you by a denomination or by narrow-minded Christians, as it were, but there's a fullness in life, the fullness of God, life in its full, he says. We only have to read a little bit of church history to know about all the divisions and the differences that are split and split and split and split. So we have so many denominations, it runs into thousands now. And I'm sure they're all born again, but they have so many ideas. They've been cut off from so many other people. This is the point I'm making. But what the Holy Spirit has done through these last 2,000 years is try and revive us or bring us the truth. And I think he's done an excellent job. As I go through these different traditions, you're going to go, oh yes, I know something about that. They don't do it in my church, but I know about that and I know that it's true. And, and you'll be able to look at things and think, oh yes, I don't do that, but I see Christ did it and he told me to follow him, so perhaps I should be doing that. God's plan then for our lives is that we should be Christ-like. Christ-like. He transforms us by his spirit on the inside so we reflect Christ to the world. We're called Christians. Christ ones. That wasn't a name that Jesus gave his disciples. It wasn't even a name the disciples gave themselves. It was the society at Antioch when they saw this another Jewish sect. They thought, oh, well, we've seen lots of Jewish sects here at Antioch. But these were different. They preached this man Christ and their lives were different. They were like Christ. They were Christ ones and they got called Christians. Christians. Isn't that wonderful? I'm sure, although Jesus didn't give him the name, he wasn't disappointed with it. And that's what we are. Uh, to say I'm a Christian, you're saying I'm a Christ one. You know, not that I believe in him, that's not what a Christian does. A Christian looks like Christ. A Christian lives like Christ. He speaks like Christ. He acts like Christ. And in the end people say, you're just like Christ. You're a Christ one. That's what it really means to be a Christian, a Christ one. In our teachings of salvation, we see there are two types of salvation. You go, oh no, listen carefully here. Okay, let me read you this verse in uh, Romans 5 and 10. It indicates two parts to salvation, two types of being saved. It says this, Romans 5 and 10, for if... When we were God's enemies, and we all were, we were at enmity with him, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We had nothing to do with that apart from receiving salvation. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, completely a work of God. That's the first part. The second part goes on in that same verse. How much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? 
How am I saved through the life of Christ? Surely I was saved through his death. Well, this says you were reconciled to God through his death, but you are saved through his life. Saved from what? Okay, through careful consideration of his life. If we were saved through his life, we need to consider his life very carefully. And walking in his steps, what Peter tells us to do, we'll look at that verse a bit later, we will be saved from living a carnal life, a life that falls short of the fullness of God. First he saves us and gives us eternal salvation, but then through his life, as we examine his life and we follow his life and walk in his footsteps and decide to be little Christs and live like him, he saves us from our carnal nature. See, Christ did it all for us to get us reconciled, but there's a little bit of effort expected by you now to be able to walk in his footsteps. Now, he empowers you to do it, he helps you to do it, he can't do any more apart from encourage you to submit your will to follow him and to do what he says. And in that following of him, he saves your life. He saves you from this carnal life that, leads to misery and pain and disappointment and heartache. He leads you to a life of fullness in him. Ephesians 5 and 1, it tells us to imitate God. It's a bit strong, isn't it? Be an imitator of God, it says. And it goes on to say, imitate him in the way that you love one another. How can we imitate God? Is that possible? Well, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, of course it's possible. Through the power of the Spirit within, Christ entering into us by the Spirit enables us to live like Christ so we can fully manifest God in our lives. Imitating him, following him, copying him, being like him, empowered by God's Spirit. And that verse I said in, in Peter, 1 Peter 2 and 21, to, you, to this you have been called, this is the calling that's on your life, that you follow in his footsteps. We look at Jesus, we see what he did, and we follow him. We follow him in every aspect, in every tradition that's been handed down to the church the wide church, we embrace all of these and we realise, hmm, I haven't had all the traditions handed down to me, just some of them, but I want all of them because I want to walk in his footsteps. If we're to walk in his footsteps, we must give first importance, preeminence to the Gospels. See, that's where the Gospels really come to their fore, above every other book in the Bible, because it shows us what it is to live like Christ, to walk like Christ. When he came onto the earth, he showed us how to live the life, and we follow in his footsteps. We imitate him, because he is imitating God, so we imitate Christ. 
the life of Christ is displayed for us in the Gospels, page after page after page. As I was saying, over the centuries, precious teaching, vital experiences about the life of Christ, they've been neglected. Maybe it suited some church leaders to neglect certain things, to ignore them, uh, not to take them on board at all. Uh, it might have caused them to, I don't know, suffer reproach or, or not to be favourable with those who could do them favours. But then we find through church history what happens, the Holy Spirit comes. He comes at the appropriate time. He raises up a person or a movement and through that person or movement he brings correction to the omissions. The most obvious must be Martin Luther. <laughs> the church was in a mess, a real mess. Lots of people were dissatisfied with it. Uh, they were ready for someone to come and to stand up. And so the Holy Spirit moves upon this man and he, he shows him certain things and he starts to speak out. And of course, these people who know in their hearts that what Martin Luther is saying is right and what the church is doing is wrong, they're drawn to him. But what pain it created and caused. Those with a vested interest wanted nothing to do with him, tried to kill him. And as a result of that uprising, we know that really 100, 100 150,000 people were slaughtered to death because of that uprising with Martin Luther. He was not only taking on the church, he was taking on great power in the world that it was in their vested interest to shut Luther down. But the Holy Spirit doesn't let that happen. Time and time again through church history, you'll see he raises up groups of people where the church has neglected things. And isn't that what happened in the charismatic renewal? The things of the Spirit were being ignored and so he raised up a group of people and moved upon them and there was a, a groundswell of people that wanted it. Something new and something refreshing, something real that they knew was missing. And so that was probably the, the, the latest thing that I'm talking about that we've experienced. And a lot of us have experienced it. We were in churches that would have said, this is wrong, this is heresy, this is of the devil. You shouldn't have nothing to do with this. And yet something in our hearts thought, ooh, I don't know though. So we snuck off somewhere and we, we got involved in it and we knew within our hearts the Spirit of God was reviving something that had been neglected, that had been omitted. The Spirit of God has done that time and time and time again. When this happens, a number of people come under renewed teaching. We're going to be looking at some of these people as we look at some of them, not only in church history, but since uh, you know, the, the whole history of the church, since the scriptures, just phenomenal people who have led the church back to the truth or expanded the church's appreciation of the truth. As I said, often they were resisted by the establishment. It wasn't in their interest to embrace it. You know 
of people perhaps it wasn't in the church's interest to embrace the things of the spirit and they were asked to leave and so we had hundreds and hundreds of churches uh, coming through and, and starting in people's houses hence the house church movement it wasn't a little thing it was a big thing that affected thousands and thousands of people the holy spirit moving bringing truth back it's time time they would form their own communities through church history uh, they would bring a truth that would be ignored and they would be ostracized and then they would form a little group and that was just another river just another stream that they couldn't break into the establishment and bring the truth that god wanted to so they had to just do their thing on their own and this world is full of christian streams full of truth that aren't being brought together. God wants it to come together. One day it'll all come together. One day he'll be amongst us and we'll know the truth. But until that day, we're going to end up with something of a division, a splintering. The result of this over the centuries, as I said, is various streams, leaving the whole church, as it were, deprived of balanced teaching are you a balanced Christian you go yeah I think I am you see of course we think we are we think we're right we're not thinking we're missing out on much but as I look at these things you go mm, maybe I am missing out maybe I've I've read about that and I thought mm, that's it but I haven't inculcated it into my life Maybe I've looked at this, and so what we've done, we've just been happy with our narrow stream, and we haven't embraced things. We can even give lip service. I hear many churches saying, we're charismatic, and when I go there, I don't see anything charismatic. I don't see any manifestations of the Spirit. I don't hear people speaking in tongues. I don't see them praying for the sick, or raising the dead, or casting out demons. I think, this doesn't strike me as very charismatic. Maybe they mean we sing happy songs. Well, that's not charismatic. The charismatic life is one of the traditions that Christ showed us what the charismatic life was. To be empowered by the Spirit is the charismatic life. He showed us what holiness was. He showed us lots of different things, and it's this we're going to look at in our study. In this module, we'll look at a number of these traditions. These are them. We will look at the contemplative tradition, the tradition where we fix our focus on God. We contemplate him. We'll be dealing with that after the break. We're going to look at the holiness tradition, the charismatic tradition, the social justice tradition. Watch them. All they want to do is help people all the time ignoring everything else in the kingdom they just want to help people that's fantastic but listen it's not balanced we need to have all of these traditions to be fully balanced unless god calls you specifically to do a particular job but even then we have to bear in mind the rest of what it is to be a follower of jesus christ like i said the social justice tradition the evangelical tradition. Oh, we're solid on the word. It's the word. We want everyone saved. Uh, but they're narrow, often, 
and the other traditions are somewhat ignored to that extent. The incarnational tradition, where our lives are seen as being sacramental, every moment lived with God and for God. So these traditions describe various dimensions then of the spiritual life. And many through the centuries have exemplified them for us. Thankfully, they've written books to tell us. And so we can read them and appreciate some of them. So at the end of each uh, tradition, I will bring to you uh, a number of authors. They will be primarily the ones that have influenced my life, the books that I've read. But I found in all of these different traditions, I have read authors related to that, and they have opened my eyes to the truth. So the Spirit has been faithful with bringing to the church as a whole the whole truth of Jesus Christ. And it's up to us to avail ourselves of these things. When the Spirit of God through somebody maybe encourages you to look at something or think about something or read this, it's good to go there because what God's trying to do through the Spirit is to widen your understanding of what it is to be a Christian. You read the first few pages and go, I'm not interested in that. Oh no, you soldier on and thinking, what is it, Lord, you're trying to teach me from this person? But of all the people that exemplify it, no one exemplifies these traditions better than Jesus Christ himself. He was God in bodily form. If it's something that Christ didn't do, ignore it. It has nothing to do with Christendom. It has nothing to do with Christ. Don't worry about that. But if he did it, find out about it. Embrace it. Live in it. Experience it. Bring it into your life so you too become a balanced Christian. When Jesus walked across the pages of history, the people said, no one speaks like this man. They could have also said it would have been appropriate. No one lives like this man. I've never seen anyone do what he does. But we get a little glimpse, don't we? Remember those early Christians in Antioch? They were called Christ ones. They had something of the truth, didn't they? It says in that passage, as you read that verse, uh, it says something to the effect that Saul, he was still called Saul at that time, Saul and Barnabas, they went to Antioch and they preached for a whole year. I thought, what did they preach? They could have only preached one thing, couldn't they? They preached Christ. They preached Christ, the life of Christ, how he lived. And so these people started to imitate and copy that, and they too became Christ ones. During his years in the flesh, he attracted many people to him by the, the life that he lived, the things that he said. They were his students. They were his apprentices. There were a select group of 12 that walked with him so close every step of the way. He truly did become their rabbi. And they truly were his followers in that sense of following a rabbi. How do we follow Jesus today in the 21st century? 
can't walk around dusty roads, can we, with long robes? We would definitely be a little bit weird if we did that. That's not what we're driving at here. Someone said to me the other day, if Christ appeared, what would he wear? I thought, that sounds a dumb question. Never been asked a question like that before. But it, it, it caused me to think, think, well, he'd want to be recognised, wouldn't he? So he might wear this long robe thing, but then I've got an idea he might just wear ordinary clothes. And somehow we would know it was Jesus, not because of what he wore, because of the spirit that was on him. But I thought that interesting little question. He'll do whatever he suits him, wasn't it, to, to, to achieve the goal, whatever would be best for us. He would probably do that thing. We follow him in the spirit, as it were. It's the spirit of Christ that we follow. The basic principles and the pattern would be the same. And we take that on board. We would imitate him in our lives. In different cultures, uh, in different periods of history, many have sought to imitate Christ. Someone from China in the 1700s. Someone from America in the 21st century. Vastly different in time and culture, and it couldn't be so vastly different. Even our own culture, if we go back 500 years and look at our culture today, there were men and women that wanted to imitate Christ. They wanted Christ to live in them and through them, and they achieved it, and we can achieve it too. We will look at a number of stories uh, that will show us from Christian history how this is possible. So we'll have a break here, and after the break we'll come to our first uh, tradition, which is the contemplative tradition. Okay, bless you. Let's now turn to the first of these uh, six traditions that we're going to consider over the next uh, couple of weeks. The contemplative tradition continually draws us, as it were, into the love of God because we're focusing on him. It reminds us that relationship is at the very heart of Christianity, a relationship with Christ and our relationship with one another. In this tradition, they stress the values of solitude, silence, and prayer. Uh, a prayer I want to speak about in a more general term, not simply us petitioning God, because that's how we learn to pray. We just constantly come asking. Prayer is more about listening, it's more about worshipping, it's more about being with. That's the way I'm going to use that word, prayer. Through contemplation, then, we engage with the presence of God. He said he'll never leave us or forsake us, so he's always present with us. And in this tradition, we are aware and conscious of his presence all the time, and so we focus our soul upon him. We rise early in the morning and our first thoughts are to spend time with him. 
We might take walks and fellowship with him, not letting our mind be filled with everything else, but we, we commit ourselves to fellowship him with him. We engage on the bus or on the train when our, we're in idle time, as it were. We, we turn towards him. We can engage with God in the exercises that don't require a lot of mental thinking, gardening, painting, washing up, those sorts of things. Our mind just goes back to God, as it were. Teresa of Avila describes contemplation like this. An intimate sharing between friends in the time and manner that works best for you and God. See, it's a personal thing, the way that you share and spend time with your friends and this idea of sharing and spending time in a relationship with God. Put simply, the contemplative life is a steady gaze of the soul upon God who loves us. In all of these uh, traditions that we're going to look at, we're going to turn our attention to Christ and see how he uh, exemplified this in his life. Jesus was intimate with his Father, constantly, continually, it appears. It says in John 5 and 19, Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. Was his soul continually gazing upon the father? He knew what the father would do. He saw all the time the father's heart. Jesus had developed a close, intimate relationship with the father. He always knew what to do. This gave him a freedom. Imagine that you always knew what the right thing was to do. You would have freedom to choose all the time and your choice would always be to do the right thing. This gave him, as I said, a freedom to live his life to the full because his choices were always God's choices. He was free to choose but he always chose what God would have wanted him to do. Again, he adds to this in John 5 and 30, a few verses later. He says, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. He said, I see. I hear my father, and I do accordingly. Again, uh, in 14 and 10, it says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And we know that in the, uh, in the upper room with the uh, disciples, with the apostles, just prior to his death, he prays for them. And this is really at the heart of the prayer that he prays. And then he says, I don't only pray this for the apostles, but I pray this for everyone who will believe uh, after them. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. 
So this oneness that we see that Christ had with the Father, constantly hearing, knowing, understanding, his soul gazing, is the very thing that he's praying that we will experience, that we will live our lives, walk our lives, knowing what God wants us to do. Constantly, our souls fixed upon him. Does this mean that when Jesus prayed, he never asked God what he should do? He knew. I believe his prayer was somewhat different from most Christians' prayer. Most Christians, their lives, their prayer lives are so full of petitioning, as it were, asking God, not knowing what's going on, not knowing what God wants to do in their lives. But that's not what prayer primarily should be. There are times when we will ask, we will petition, but our prayer life is to do perhaps more with fellowship with him, with union with him, talking things over with him rather than just petitioning, petitioning. We know something of this in the marriage union, don't we? It says about when we're, when we're married, the two become one, as it were. And as they live together and uh, talk together and walk together in life, they, they start to understand each other, almost knowing exactly what the other one will think and say about a situation. Why? Because they get to know each other. It's as though they, they gaze upon each other's souls. They know how they think. They know how they function. The marriage union then is a picture of our covenant relationship with God. That's the whole purpose of the imagery of the marriage, that it's the same as a covenant relationship we have with the Lord. I want to now reflect on some of the times when Christ prayed. And uh, it doesn't tell us what he said. It said he went off to pray. But uh, I want to suggest to you, rather than asking God things, it was more like a, a fellowship, a union, and a dialogue together. The first example is when, uh, at his baptism, remember he went into the waters with John, and we read this in Luke 3 and 21. It says, when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, it says, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. He was fellowship with God as he goes into the water, praying, more fellowshipping with, and of course as he is talking with God, we know that God speaks from heaven and declares uh, praise for his son. What a wonderful job he's doing. So that prayer was a prayer of fellowship in his baptism. When he had to choose the 12 apostles, it says this in uh, Luke 6 and 12, uh, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them. Uh, you might think, well, he didn't know who the 12 should be, so he went and asked his father, and his father told him who the 12 should be. I don't see it like that. I think because he constantly lived in communion with his father and he, he worked with the disciples that were with him, he knew in his spirit who it is that he should choose. 
And so that evening was spent in fellowship and union with his father. Another example, after an exhausted evening of healing and deliverance, we read this in Mark 1 and 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. If you've had experience of uh, ministering, uh, whether it's preaching, teaching, or praying for people, often it's good just to go back and to fellowship with God, to talk about the experience, to mull things over, as it were, with him. God, God likes that. And so Jesus, he, he had a busy night. He says he saw many healed and many delivered. And I'm sure that time of prayer with him was this vital time of fellowship and union with the Father. One day after he was praying, uh, he was prompted in his spirit to ask the people who they thought he was. I'm sure in his prayer time with the Father, it was something like this. How, how are we getting on? Uh, how is this mission that you've sent me on, Father? How is it developing? Where are the people at? What, what's going on there? It says in Luke 9 and 18, once when Jesus was praying in, a, in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am. From this prayer was this desire to find out where the people had got to. They were listening to him all the time, wanted to know what his, uh, his apostles had picked up from the people and their responses to him. Possibly one of the most exciting times when Jesus prayed was when he went uh, up the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke 9 and 28. About eight days after, Jesus said to, uh, sorry, Jesus said this, uh, and let's start again. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James and John with him, and they went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Again, it wasn't there, he wasn't there to request, he was there to have fellowship. And remember, that's when uh, Moses and Elijah appeared to him. His, his whole prayer life was more to do with a dialogue, a relationship, a fellowship, a union with his father. Uh, there was a time when the disciples they, they were watching him pray, listening to him pray. They were seeing that when he prayed, he was different. Maybe because he had fellowshiped with the Father. They wanted this. Their prayers were perhaps, you know, just a repetition of things. They, they didn't know how to pray. And they thought, well, he does a lot of this and it seems to really spur him on. Lord, they said, teach us how to pray. It's in Luke 11 and 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples to pray. Teach us, Lord. It's what we're doing, it's more than this. 
There's something deep. There's something relational. There's something to do with union and fellowship with God. Teach us how to do this. Teach us how to be intimate. Teach us how to fix our gaze upon him all the time. He taught them. And this is how he taught us in our prayer. One of the first things he teaches us to pray is to be intimate with the Father. He said, call him Abba, Father. When you pray, don't pray as it were to God who is distant and far, but to your Abba Father who is close and wants a deep, meaningful relationship with you. He taught through the parables. Remember one of them is he taught about a woman who needed justice. And so she went to the judge and she put her case before him and he seemed to want nothing to do with her. But it says she was persistent. She kept going back and she wearied him and in the end he gave her what she was entitled to. I'm not suggesting that God doesn't listen to us or he's unfair in any, any way, but the idea of being persistent, to, to keep coming. In fact, we perhaps shouldn't come and go to God, but just be there, gazing upon him, walking with him, fellowship with him, talking with him all the time, hanging out with God, being there all the time. He taught us how to pray in secret. When we pray in church often, we're very conscious of what people are listening to, and so we sort of pray a performance prayer. We want to get the words right, and we want to, uh, we're thinking of what people s s are listening to. That's fine, I understand that in, in public prayer time, and we should really be more relaxed and not worry what others are saying. But his emphasis is when you pray, go into a secret place. A secret place where just you and him are. A place where you can just fellowship and commune with him and you can enjoy each other's company. In that place, you might not say a lot. You might listen a lot. You might reflect a lot. In the secret place. We're told who to pray for. We're to pray for those that do us harm in that place. Just bring them to God and pray for them. When we pray, we must forgive, it says. We mustn't hold any resentments in our heart. If we're going to fellowship and talk to God and commune with him, he sees directly into the heart. There can be no bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness there. It will hinder that fellowship that we have with the Father. We are to believe what we pray for will come to pass. We have to pray with faith. As we listen to what God is saying to us and then we pray back what we believe he has said, we can put faith in the fact that he has spoken to us about it. We can't put faith in something that God has not declared that he will do or he wants to do. So by knowing him, we can pray and, and pray and bring about those changes because we pray in faith. He encourages us to speak to the situation or the problem that is in front of us, to take authority 
as we come from the prayer time with God and we've heard from him, then we can speak with authority against these things that come against us, the difficulties, the, the trials, the challenges that come. And he says one thing in his prayer as well, if we're going to ask for anything, is that we must ask for workers, people who will come alongside us, people who will swell the ranks, as it were, and so we can work together to build the kingdom of God. All of these teachings that he gave constantly, and there's a lot more relating to prayer, he matched them all the time. He did it, he said it, he taught it, and he was an example to us all the time. As we read the Gospels, it's not only what he taught us and the things that he said, but we look at his life and the way he lived it, his example to us. Where and when did he pray? I think we've been uh, spoken to often uh, in our Christian life to be people of discipline, to be people of routine. And so we've made prayer something of a ritual in our lives. Our talking to God has become a ritual. I pray in the morning, I pray at night. And it's as though, but isn't, isn't your prayer, your commune with God, a natural thing that just has no rules and regulations to it? I understand that when we're young, we're given rules and regulations, but we, we learn to practice these things. They become part of us, and so we don't operate by rules anymore. And when something so vital as a relationship with God, should it be governed by rules? Surely in a relationship, it flows from the heart. You don't think, I have to see my friend, I have to do this. You go with your friend, you ring your friend up, you go out with your friend because he's your friend and that's what your heart wants to do. And so you're not commanded to do it, it's, it's not ritualistic. Somehow our prayer life has become like that for so many. It says regarding Jesus' prayer, he was led of the Spirit to pray. We know after his baptism it says he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness that he might pray. Uh, he prayed for 40 days and 40 nights. He never did that. I don't know if he did it more than that. Maybe he did, but we know that he at least did it the one time. A one-off, uh, a, a, a time of, of, of great importance on the outset of his ministry. So there are some times when we must pray a lot about something and sometimes we might go a while without uh, praying, although we commune with God all the time. It says when things were difficult, he withdrew himself um, to a, a lonely or a desert place, uh, and there he would talk to his father, fellowship, commune with him without the external uh, confusion or the people all pressing in on him. It says this when he fed the 5,000, remember? He, they wanted to make him king, so he took himself away and fellowship with God. When his disciples were exhausted, he said, come, let's go away and fellowship quietly with God. His most intimate and recorded prayer were in the upper room at the Last Supper. 
and probably the, the culmination of all his prayer life, all his fellowship with God, was in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had this deep time of fellowship with the Father. Uh, we see his humanity, don't we? Is, is there another way? No one relishes dying or going into a place of death. So he was uh, just talking to the Father. Is there another way? Of I have to do this? Of course, he knew there was only the one way. All of this stirs each of us to a deeper life of prayer. As we look at Christ's life, and we look at his life in relationship with his Father, focused upon his Father, hearing what his Father is saying, seeing what his Father is doing, this contemplative lifestyle, we see the importance of it. We don't want to live uh, a ritualistic life. We don't want to live a life with rules and regulations placed upon us. We want this relationship with God to be natural, and wholesome and 24 hours a day. What I'll do at the, each of these traditions when I've uh, examined them and looked at them, I want to look at some uh, notable figures from history, uh, church history that is, over the last 2,000 years, uh, examples that have oh, primarily influenced me and uh, I've, I've gleaned a lot of truth and understanding from these particular people. There are a lot more that we could uh, pick on because what the Spirit does, and we've looked at this uh, last week, he, as, a, as an aspect of, of Christ's life is lost to the church, somehow we've neglected it. it it's not been ministered to us in the, in the tradition that we find ourselves. The Holy Spirit comes and teaches the church again to bring us back to those central streams of the Christian life. And so in my life, in walking with the Lord, the churches that I've been in have not necessarily taught these things because there's lots of material out there that we can draw on, that the Spirit of God can lead us to, to give us the full picture of what it is. So these are just three that have influenced my life. Some of them have come up in previous modules that I've taught, and so these names could be familiar to a number of you. The first is Brother Lawrence, uh, 1611 to 1691, 17th century. Uh, a, a book that I read that influenced me quite a lot and read about the man, he never wrote a book actually himself. He kept diaries and these were uh, translated for us in, into books. The book is Practicing the Presence of God or the Practice of the Presence of God. He was uh, a lay brother and uh, he served in the kitchens in a, a Carmelite monastery uh, in Paris. And uh, I'll just give you a little caption of what he says so you've got a flavor of it. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer and is in the noise and the clatter of my kitchen. I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were 
at the blessed sacrament. See, his gaze was upon the Lord in the jobs that he did, washing up, I presume, and lots of other uh, menial tasks like that. His, his focus, his soul was constantly pointing in the direction of God, that he could talk and hear God speak to him. He never went to and came from God. He simply stayed there, got on with life, but somehow developed this way of having communion with God. Another person who influenced me as well was a man called Frank Leboch. Uh, 1884 he lived to 1970, more present. He was a missionary to the Philippines in uh, 1915. In uh, his writings, uh, he did write a book, uh, he said he sought to live each moment with a sense of God's presence. And he uh, explains there how he practices that, encouraging, inspiring. Again, a much more modern book, uh, which will, you know, be helpful to you. And my third choice is a man called Henry Nguyen. Uh, he lived from uh, 1932 to 1996. Um, a very uh, intelligent man. He was a university professor uh, who, uh, at the end of his life, uh, spent those years in a home for the mentally uh, disadvantaged in France. Uh, he wrote a lot and his books were very popular. He sold about at least two million uh, in America. Probably the most famous of his books was The Genesee Diary. It was written during a time when he spent 17 months as a Trappist monk in New York. And uh, he challenges in this book, he challenges the Christian to seek a much deeper uh, spiritual life through solitude. I was brought up in a Pentecostal tradition and then in the charismatic tradition, I never heard about solitude. I never heard about the importance of just being quiet and seeking God and meditating on him. It just, it didn't come naturally to that particular stream. Uh, and so what we want to do is not stay in, in just the track or the stream where we are. We want to broaden uh, our appreciation of what the Christian life is all about. There are perils in all of these traditions, these streams that we're going to look at, that if we pursue them at the expense of the other traditions, uh, they can do us some harm. In this idea of living a life that is focused upon God, of course, it can lead to separation. We separate ourselves, as it were, from ordinary life. We're just somehow so heavenly-minded, we're no earthly good. You might have heard that expression. We've cut life out and it's just us and God, us and God. That, that's not a good thing. Um, to, to focus too intently, as it were, on God um, and not to engage in the social needs that we see around us is a dangerous thing. The, the second uh, potential peril with this sort of tradition is that is that of excess 
excess is never good in, in any form really. We have to maintain a balance in our life. There are many examples in uh, church history of uh, asceticism and uh, we need to remind ourselves of some of these. People did some really strange things, believing that they were dedicating themselves to God in a unique way. Uh, a man lived on a platform, didn't he, for something like a number of years, just alone on this platform. Uh, I know another uh, one that I read about, uh, he simply had, he stood up for seven years and wouldn't sit down or rest, believing somehow this drew him closer to God. Another who, with his food, would eat sand and uh, just somehow he believed that, that drew him closer to God. It, it's an excess. It's dangerous. And so uh, we need to be careful. In this... Uh, way of thinking that we want to bring into our Christian walk and experience. As I said, balance is important and it's balance of both the word and the spirit. Cold theology doesn't touch the heart, but neither must we debunk uh, reason and clear thinking to just move into some spiritual dynamic. So we want the word with all the intellect and the truth and the spirit as well and the spiritual experience. And so we somehow bring them together. As I said, that important word, keeping in balance. If we simply focus on God all the time, we can neglect the community of Christians. It becomes just God and me, God and me. Well, that's unhealthy. It won't end well if we think like that. Most of us are not called to live in isolation. Some are, uh, but generally speaking, we need the body of Christ. That's how we remain healthy Christians, talking, discussing, listening, listening to different people's opinions and ideas, uh, ministering socially to people, reaching out to people, but at the same time, in all of this service, in all of this activity, somehow keeping a soul connected, gazing upon God, always open, listening to what he might say. How might we practice this? If I've suggested that this might be a good thing uh, for you to do. How about taking a day off and having a retreat? Uh, not where you petition God, but simply where you are silent, and listen to God, you think, wow, can I do that? It's not an easy thing to do. You might think you can do it because initially you might start and then you want to say something. Well, you force yourself to be quiet and to just meditate and to think and to be silent. You could fellowship with God more as you travel. Um, I, I travel quite a lot to go and uh, minister here and there and I find myself several hours in a train. Well, I'm, I'm not always just silent meditating. I might be reading, but there are times on the journey when you think, well, I'll just I'll be quiet now and I'll just commune with God, as it were, talk to him, uh, bring up some uh, things that are on my heart, listen to him. What is he saying to me? Here's an interesting uh, thing you could do. Rise at two in the morning, 
You think, oh, I think I'd rather sleep. Well, rise, you don't have to do it all the time. Rise and sit quietly for an hour in the silence of everything. See, we've got to practice this, otherwise we're never gonna move forward in any of this. It's hard at first, but you will benefit in the way that Christ went away. He seemed to be all night on his own. I'm only suggesting here what Christ has already told us to do in his word. So we're simply following him in these examples. Rise an hour before the day starts and focus on God. Meditate, talk to him. Talk to him about yesterday or talk to him about today. As you read your Bibles, pray about the scriptures as you read them. Quite often we, we rush our reading slow down, maybe read less, and focus on his words. What is he really saying? What is he saying to me? Pray about certain things that you read. Another thing is to stop praying for a whole day. Because our prayers are often us talking to God, just don't pray for a day. Live a day without it. Just spend a day listening and seeing if God is appearing in people's conversations, in the things that you see. Can you see God moving and acting in things around you, things that are happening? Be a listener and not just one who constantly talks. And last one here is simply to sit in silence. Silence and say nothing. Now, what I'm suggesting you is not to take over your Christian experience, but they are, they are part of this tradition that many Christians have never even considered or, or have never received any teaching on that will take you into a new experience, as it were, of God, all found in the life of Christ, who we want to follow. Okay, bless you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation to the ministry. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.